right, we should be live. Um, I, I don't know what happened with my mic. I hope everyone can hear me now. I tried going live a few minutes ago, and uh, people were saying they couldn't hear anything. And I think I might have had it on mute. That might be the problem. So, um, but yeah, we are uh, we are live, and we're going to be talking today a little bit about cultural Christianity. And um, the the reason is I, I wasn't expecting to do this because I thought maybe you all had had enough. But I put a poll out there on YouTube. And uh, the poll had four different options. And I'll actually pull that up. Uh, I might talk about some of these later in the week. Um, but one was just uh, gossip, slander, the biblical view of that, memes. How do memes connect with that? I mean, kind of in new territory right now when it comes to communication online. And that got 16% of the vote. Uh, more on cultural Christianity was the winner with 34% of the vote. Uh, the SBC election and ERLC on guns was the runner-up, 24%. And then integralism was the lowest, 6%, which uh, I was a little surprised at that. I thought people would want to dive into integralism a little more because so many people are accusing Christian nationalists of integralism and saying that's what it is. I read a book on it. I've listened to some podcasts from Catholics on this, and uh, I think it's important, but 6%, uh, so I guess not important to everyone. And concupiscence, 19%, Catholic versus excuse me, versus Protestant views. Uh, we'll probably talk about that at some point. I've been saving. I, I have videos on my computer that I've been saving and I just haven't gotten to it. But uh, lots of lots of stuff going on. People are uh, finally starting to enter the live stream again. Sorry about all the confusion there. I know there was a number of people in the live stream and then I just decided to, to stop it because you couldn't hear me. But it looks like people are able to hear me now. So um, let's kick this off with... Uh, Oh, are people hearing me? Yes, they are. Good. Okay. Let's kick this off, um, if I can, with with a, a series of stories, some short stories, because I, I think one of the first things we have to do is define culture. We have to understand what it is, what we're looking at. And I mean, the, the definition's easy, and it's in the word. It's that which is cultivated, right? So we, we know that. It's what grows up around something, what um, you think of plants, you think of raising even kids, you're cultivating them. Uh, traditions, they're cultivated over time. So, so so that is, I think, hopefully clear to everyone. But I want to give some concrete examples of what this actually looks like in practice. What is culture? And I'm not talking about Christianity or in any religiously influenced culture. I'm just talking about culture as such, culture in and of itself. What is it? Over the weekend, um, my wife and I were traveling. We went to Nashville. She had scheduled a concert there that she wanted to go to, Nickel Creek, for those who care. It's a bluegrass uh, folk band. And she did this back in the winter. So we've been looking forward to it. And uh, her brother lives in Nashville. And there's a generous supporter who let us stay at their house, which is very nice. And so we get there and the day before, unfortunately, the concert was canceled. So I didn't get to see it. But we we did go downtown. We did see some music. Uh, the, the first night, my wife actually wanted to uh, go to a movie. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I went to a kid's movie. I went to see Mario. Uh, very clean, by the way, if you have kids. Um, I think for me growing up in the 90s, Mario was part of the culture in a way, right? Other people in the audience were my age and I'm sure they had the same memories when they're hearing the music, they're seeing the images, they're thinking, I remember times when I was a kid playing Mario with my friends. 
So and now they made a movie off of it, and I can take my kids. So that's that's what was going on there. And uh, and so there's a cultural element to this. But then the next day we went down to uh, downtown Nashville and went to a pizza place where there were some bluegrass guys playing. And they're playing some old songs, songs from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And people there knew it. They, some people were singing along. And, you know, that's culture. We went to, um, many of you might not know who this is because he was popular in the 70s and 80s. But my mom used to listen to Glenn Campbell. There's a Glenn Campbell Museum in Nashville. We went there. And again, hearing more music. It's, it's, and I'm talking about music. I'm talking about media. Obviously, that's not the only thing to culture. But that's part of culture. That, it, it's that which is cultivated. Humans taking raw materials, taking um, even uh, non, uh, they're, they're not physical materials, but taking things God has created like language and then using those things, arranging those things in a certain way, cultivating, fashioning. And, and this is, as such, in and of itself, is a good thing. Culture is, is a good thing. And so I want to give you a concrete example of what I'm talking about here. Um, I want to play this. This is interesting to me, and I think it will be interesting to you, too. Uh, this is Tom Daniel, who is a music professor. And I was at a conference recently, and I got to hear Tom Daniel talk about something called Scottish snaps or the Lombard rhythm. Now, you may wonder how this connects to cultural Christianity, and uh, and we're going to get there. But I want you to listen to this. It's a few minutes long. Um, check it out are all Romance languages based on Latin. And because of that, they have similar rhythmic patterns in their language. People pronounce things with a similar pattern. Manana. It begins with a weak syllable, then a strong syllable, then a weak syllable. Manana. And a lot of Spanish words have that same pattern to it. Tostada. Siempre. Ernesto. And phrases. Que pasa. De nada. All of those have that same rhythmic pattern to them. Italian works the same way. Amore, favore, bambino, signore. It's got that same rhythmic pattern. And phrases, miscusi, non posso. They've got that same pattern. So you would expect that music written from Romance languages would feature that rhythm a lot because that's how they talk. And that's exactly right. That's what their music sounds like. English has a completely different identifiable speech rhythm in it. And it's found in these words. This is just a small sample. Uh, jumping. Playing. And right away you hear the difference. It's a, a strong syllable, short, followed by a weaker syllable that's long. <coughs> Uncle. Basic. Wicked phrases, want it, got it. Peter, Bonnie, Mama, bloody, saith, tell me, get up. You do not hear that rhythm in Romance languages. It's not there. It's in English, not in Romance languages. So, musically, the Europeans referred to that rhythm as a Lombard rhythm. That's what it looks like. If you read music, that's what it looks like. It's a short note followed by a longer note. Um, underneath, Bonnie, Scottish, Lassie. And that's the rhythm of those words if it were written out in music. 
for those who are starting the stream right now uh, and are confused, you thought this was the Conversations That Matter podcast with John Harris. Um, I'm, I'm playing a video, and I'm, we're in the middle of it right now, uh, from Tom Daniel, a music professor, and he's explaining Scottish snaps and the Lombard rhythm. And I'm using this as a concrete example in showing what culture is. So uh, hang with me for a moment here. However, it appears most prevalently musically in Scottish Highlands folk music, where it is called a Scotch snap. And you hear that a lot in Scottish Highlands folk music. For example, ta-da, you hear that, ta-da, ta-da. And I can't get away without playing Scotland the Brave, so. <laughs> okay, I think that's enough for now. Um, it gets more more interesting I, I because of copyright stuff and i don't know what it'll do to the video if i play it uh i'm not going to play it but um he, he starts uh, at the end of this showing well, some interesting comments coming in he's uh the professor there uh starts showing that at the end um of his talk we have these scottish snaps or this lombard rhythm in um, English music, it's inescapable. And uh, it, it's called the Scottish snaps because it, it, it's more prevalent or you hear it more in Scottish influenced music. You, you hear it in bluegrass for sure, which is where I heard it. And so I'm noticing this. I'm noticing this as I'm in Nashville. And, and, and I had not been aware of it before because I hadn't heard Tom Daniel talk about it. But then I was aware of it and I'm hearing it everywhere. And I'm like, oh, that's Scottish snaps. So w what does that have to do with anything? Well, this is part of the reality of what culture is. It's it's such a good example of it because there's, I think, probably millions of these things, at least thousands of things that make up the life that we live, that are part of the flavor uh, of the life we live. And we're just not quite aware of them, perhaps. We're not conscious of them, but we feel them. We know them. We're willing to defend them. Uh, I mean, um, when people go to war, they want to defend. If you look at their letters, if you look at the songs they sing, the folks back home, people aren't as motivated to go to war to, to defend some kind of a universal abstraction like freedom or, or equality. But when they're being invaded and, and they're looking around and they're seeing the very things that uh, are part of their life, they will fight tooth and nail to defend that. And I'm not saying they're going to war for Scottish snaps, but Sc Scottish snaps is just one little element that's part of this big um, tapestry. All these ingredients come together and form a culture. So where do Scottish snaps come from? Where do they come from? Are, are they just invented by man? No. No, where does language come from? Um, you, you could say the Scottish snaps perhaps, perhaps were fashioned or, or, I don't know, you could say discovered maybe if you want to say that, but... They were there was a cultivation of some kind happening, but where where are they drawing from? What did what did Tom Daniel just say? He said where they came from is ultimately it's God, right? He doesn't say that, but he says it's language. Where does language come from? We know this. It's part of the creation. It's part of uh, what God did at the Tower of Babel. So why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up for a few reasons. Um, the first is this. 
oftentimes, and I think this is a barrier, this is a divide in this fight, I hear Christians saying things about culture that just don't seem to make sense. And evangelicals in particular have two postures that are prevalent today that I've noticed. And, and I haven't said anything, I don't think, on the podcast, uh, but it, it's there's one thing that's irked me a little bit for years. And this is from the more conservative evangelicals. And you'll, you'll often hear them say things like, the church shouldn't be pragmatic. Pragmatic is, is often a word associated with this. Uh, the church shouldn't take its cues from the culture. It shouldn't follow the culture. That's wrong. Now, what I think many mean by that when they say that is they're talking about the world. They're talking about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, most of pride of life, world system, that kind of stuff, right? And that makes sense. Um, but the word they use so often is culture. And I have noticed that in some of those circles, there are people who tend, have, have a tendency to think of the church as so separate from culture that they, they'll either get into a, a position of like, we don't participate in culture. Everything must go through the narrow channel of, of the church, that, that filter, or the elders must approve everything in my life. Like it, everything filters through that. And, and, and the church just becomes everything. We gotta, and we got to have our own Christian music and our own Christian movies. You better have the pure flicks and not the Netflix, right? That kind of thing. By the way, don't, don't have the Netflix. <laughs> not, don't have the Netflix. But th there's that, right? Um, there's also, there's a suspicion, though, of anything that is, is outside the walls of the church or outside ministry. The other position I see is the Gospel Coalition position, which is that, culture is so important. We got to, we got to produce culture. We got to like manufacture it to make it attractive. So people in the world can see it and they'll be, they'll think our culture is better and they'll come and join us and think we're great. And, and that's part of being winsome. And, and that's part of, uh, having art, you know, things that you're toasting it at your church. If you're like at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York city or something. Right. And so that's the way they view it. And of course, you know, to them, culture is everything because culture is the lens by which you look at everything because they're into the standpoint theory stuff. Now, I don't know that either. I, I don't know that they actually understand culture uh, intimately well because they, they treat it as an abstraction sometimes. But um, they actually have something they share in common with the first group I mentioned, the more conservative evangelicals. Both groups actually see the church as something separate from culture. If I was going to diagram it, I'd have two circles and they wouldn't touch each other. The church would be outside of the culture. Now, in one sense, spiritually speaking, the the, the church is is certainly, it, it's a spiritual entity. So there there is a, a way, I guess you, you could frame it that way. But, but when we're talking about culture as such in and of itself, the way we've been discussing it uh, and, and the way it's commonly understood, what the, what the word actually means, um, you can't actually really separate religion and culture. It doesn't mean that they're the same thing. I don't believe, but they, but they can't, they do affect one another. They do, um, they do intersect quite a bit. In fact, they, they have an effect on each other. And, you, and, and any missionary knows this, any missionary who goes and plants a church in a foreign land knows exactly what I'm talking about because uh, th this is a debate in missions that uh, it, maybe it's not as a debate much now, but it used to be more of a debate. Of, do you go there and spread not just your Christianity, but the, the Western culture that Christianity produced? Or do you see Christianity um, as, as something that can integrate into the culture that this society already has? If it's a tribal society, they're going to look, it's going to look different. They might sing different songs. With, it might not be the Lombard rhythm, 
right? Might not be elements that we're used to uh, using in, in Western societies. And, and that's fine. That's okay, right? Uh, it, the, the pagan elements of that culture are going to be thrown out, but it doesn't mean that culture in and of itself is evil. It, culture as such, God, God loves it. God uh, made a way for it, created it. Uh, he's the one that uh, gave us the ability to fashion the materials and, and the things he's created. Uh, but, um, but man in his sinful state can often mar, distort, and use the things that God has made for nefarious purposes. And so if, if I drive down the road and I'm going past um, a, a bar, uh, there's a college town near me. So I go past the bar and I am there till, uh, you know, I'm there at one in the morning, let's say, and I'm hearing music coming out of the clubs there. Then what I'm hearing is most likely meant to cultivate sexual positions, feelings, uh, uh, just what's going to happen, the evil that's going to happen later that night. Uh, for it, it's the hookup culture. And I, uh, I, I, unfortunately, you know, since I live near a college and I've been involved in college ministry, I, I know what that looks like. Um, I've been in, in that, <clears throat> that town at those hours, um, even doing evangelism and things. And, and that's what, what, what's happening now is the music is the beat evil in and of itself that's being used. Are the, the sounds, uh, are, are those evil in and of themselves? No. No, no, God created music. I created beat. God created, but they're being fashioned. Man is fashioning them to try to adorn something that's evil, to try to promote something that's evil, right? That doesn't mean culture is bad. It means that uh, man can distort, mar, just like man does with everything uh, in a sinful state. And, and, so, and, that, and that's the bad thing. So, um, so anyway, I, I think that um, a lot of people are assuming because there's so many maybe bad versions of culture and art out there that it must, we just got to stay separate or we just have to have a, a Christian label on it or something like that. And, and that's just not the case. That's just not the case. So I, I, I wanted to start off the whole discussion with just an understanding of what culture is. And I wanted to use that Lombard rhythm, uh, hopefully as a good example of that. Um, and, and now that you have seen that, then you're going to start noticing it perhaps, uh, all over the place. So, um, Here's a few questions that um, I have about from the Bible about this, and and it relates to what we just talked about. If you go to the Old Testament, the construction of the temple was the temple beautiful? Was it meant to be one? It was, of course, it was. God gifted craftsmen; He gave them special gifts to construct and, and create this this beautiful uh, facility, and and all everything that would go into it. Um. Why do, why do you have Passover to, to commemorate what God did in bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt or the pile of stones that generations were supposed to look back on and remember what God had done in uh, the crossing of the Jordan River? Um, why were you, even things down to like the bells and the garments that the priests wore and, the, and for, forbidding mixed fabric? Why were all those things part of uh, the Mosaic law. Now there's religious element to this, but I want you to see something. There's also a cultural element to it. They were a different people. They had different traditions. They dressed differently. Uh, they, I'm sure they had different music. They, they looked different than the pagan nations that were around them. Now, um, this is, this is old Testament, obviously, but it gives us an insight into how to some extent this works. Um, I don't, like I said before, believe every element of cultures are religious in and of themselves. 
but religion certainly deeply impacts culture deeply and we have a good example in the in the children of israel now one of the things that i keep seeing is people out there saying things like uh they try to narrow the they, they try to to get this this bar this high bar that you have to meet if you are for any f- form of cultural christianity for uh, christian influencing culture um christian uh, we'll define some of this stuff in a moment but 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 for now just just keep that in your mind just christian influence on culture and, and there are people who are against this who, who think that the only influence i guess should be uh as as the gospel shared and and not in social mores and, and rituals and that kind of thing or, or force from the government or something like that so, so so that's how they view it that's fine um but one of the things that they often say is show me where in the new testament the church is required to or called to influence culture that's what I, i've heard this a number of times and it, it strikes me as odd because we have an Old Testament, first of all. If we were doing like a Dave Ramsey type, uh, you know, biblical finance, I don't, I've never taken one of those, but um, I, well, actually, that's not true. I have. <laughs> I've take, I did take one. It wasn't Dave Ramsey, but, um, but I'm familiar enough. Like I've seen the, the material. I know people who have. And what are they going to be drawing from? A lot of Proverbs, a lot of Old Testament stuff, because there's wisdom there. But yet, when it comes to government, when it comes to culture, all the, the field is all of a sudden narrowed to only the New Testament and then only the institution of the church, as if Christians should only be concerned about that institution and no other, which we know that's not true. We're concerned about the family. We're concerned about finance and we're concerned about the government. We should be concerned about these things. But 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 because the New Testament is written primarily to Christians and, and, and to the church, uh, there's an assumption that that. Uh, b- because that's the intention behind much of it, that that's the only thing Christians should be concerned about in, in there being salt and light. And and I, I think that's a flawed assumption. Uh, there's We have another Testament. We have the Old Testament as well as a model. And, and the New Testament, you know, it verifies that. It, it, uh, it, it complements that. It assumes that people know that and will value that. Um, and it's not even the only institution presented in the in, in the New Testament. Uh, of course, the instructions are to the church and to individual Christians, but you find things in there about government. Now, it's in the context of instructing people to submit, but you find out about the, the, what the purpose of government is, right? Um, so so there, are, there are things like that. Um, but, but again, if you're going to go back, we'll, we'll take the finance example again. If you're going to talk about usury, where are you going? You're going to Proverbs probably or Psalms or something to talk about or maybe the Mosaic Law to talk about that uh, because that's where it's talked about primarily in Scripture. And it is binding. It is the same God who wrote both Testaments. So um, I, I'm not trying to make an argument here that we shouldn't be shouldn't be evangelizing or the church shouldn't be uh, the the main institution, it is the institution that's concerned with heavenly good, with spiritual good, uh, and that it doesn't deserve our allegiance. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not, it's not an either or. What I'm saying is that uh, the church is one institution of many. God holds governments responsible as well. God holds all of us responsible in every sphere that we interact with. Um, much more to say. I'm going to read some scripture here soon, but I just want to get to the comments because uh, the comments are coming in. Right now, someone said, uh, this is an odd comment to me, uh, Claude Aviles, um, 
I guess assuming I, I this is right when I started the podcast, so I hadn't really said anything yet. Um, insinuating, I guess that NAR and Seven Mountains is now sound doctrine. I don't. I don't believe that. Uh, certainly, the New Apostolic Reformation is not sound doctrine. Um, that's not what we're talking about. Hopefully, that's more clear. It's starting to be clear at least. Um, and uh, let's see, we got some other uh, other folks. Do we? Here's a question. Do we agree that in order to promote cultural Christianity, you first need a sizable number of actual born again believers? Uh, yeah, and I don't know what that number is, but you do need born again believers uh, to make that work. We're living off the capital in many regions of this country of previous uh, a previous stage in our society in which there were a lot of believers, and and so it, it made for the culture that we are now getting rid of. But in some areas in this country, you still have. A respect for Christianity and, and, and you have a basis for being able to do that. But uh, not in the area I live in now, you'd need more believers, I think, to pull pull off uh, what some people are talking about. Um, let's see. <laughs> There's a lot of comments here. Let, let, let's talk about this real quick. Mormons have no issue with allowing the pagan portions of the culture to stay. Look at Hawaii. You know what? I've been there, actually. I've seen this because the Polynesian Cultural Center in Oahu is run by Mormons. Don't get me wrong. It's interesting. You know, th this is really going to... I'm tempted to go down a rabbit hole here, and I won't, but uh, but I have been there, and I do find that fascinating. Uh, that th And that's something you're right. I don't think you'd ever see Christians doing that. So, so what he's saying is that the, the Mormon church in uh, Hawaii they will, um, and it's not a real church. I, I don't believe so at all. It's a cult, uh, but they they don't have the gospel. They have a, a a center there for the propagation of Polynesian culture, and they do various rituals and things. And it's um, it's just very. It, it is odd. I, I will admit it is a little bit odd because um, I, I believe that some of that stuff is connected to pagan practices, if I'm not mistaken. But um, don't quote me on that. Uh, all right. One more question before we get back to, um, everything. Theology matters podcast says, what is your opinion on general equity theonomy? It's a, that's a loaded question because I, I don't know exactly what people mean necessarily by general equity theonomy. Doug Wilson uses that term. Joel Webin uses that term now. Um, uh, I think A.D. Robles uses that term. A lot of people are using that term more, I guess, to make a distinction between the 1980s more reconstruction theonomy. I, I don't know if it's Greg Bonson or Gary North or Gary DeMar or Rush Dooney. I don't know who they're talking about. Like, but but that group or people in that group, I think I don't want to speak for them, but I think they're trying to make a distinction and, and they're they're broadening it out a little bit. Um, whereas, you know, Gary North would write books where he was trying to find parallels in the old Testament for every single, uh, thing today. Like, um, instead of just pulling out the principles, which is, I think general equity theonomists, that's what they say they're doing. And they, they will say it's part of that's the Westminster confession. It, that's where they get the term general equity of the law that the Westminster confession calls for that. And they're saying, that's what we're for. Um, rather than trying to find specific parallels to everything. That's my best shot at that answer. My opinion of it, um, from what I understand, I think it's, I, I would probably agree with those guys for the most part. Um, I don't, I don't know if general equity the theonomy though is, if it's narrow enough to really get a, a firm definition that's, it, it's broad. It's like Christian nationalism, actually. It's pretty, it's, it's a broad category. And, and it's, 
you know, I, could I put my name by it? I guess. I mean, I, I, I could, I, under certain circumstances, I guess I could. Um, my concern generally with theonomy is that in this spot, I don't want to spend the whole podcast on this at all, but it, the thing about it is it's, it can serve, I think, as a basis, at least the general equity theonomy for approaching culture and approaching government. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that very stripped down theonomy, like just God's law. God has principles. He has a character. And from that character outflows these laws. They're, they're supposed to be a model for us, right? That's, we all agree on that. Um, but it's going to look different, as I described before, in different cultures. Christianity is going to look slightly different in different places. Sometimes a lot different, but it, the theology doesn't change. But the way um, its practice changes. And those things, I think, as we just talked about with what culture is, like the Lombard rhythm being the concrete example I use, but there's a lot of examples. Those things are good. Those things are worth uh, defending. Those things are worth enjoying. I'll give you another concrete example of this. My family does a Thanksgiving ritual every year where we pass this little apple around. And the apple is, uh, whoever has it has to say what they're thankful for. Now, is it uh, theonomy? Let, let's. Uh, this is not obviously theonomy. Would be applying to government more. This is obviously. I'm. T I'm taking a, a family situation here. But um, okay. So m m the question is, we're supposed to thank God, right? We're supposed to give thanks. It says that in the Bible. How is that done? In what order? In what manner? In what way? In what context? Using what? It doesn't always say. It gives us examples. But there's some latitude there, right? So I would, I think that my family has a good tradition, right? My wife's family doesn't have that. I, well, my family does. So this is the manner in which we do it. Now, I think there is something good about the way that we do it. It makes sense for my family. We've been doing it that way for a long time. And so I'm going to defend that. I'm going to try to um, promote that in my own family, right? I, I want to keep that going because I think it's good. So there's a, this cultural element that adorns it, it and, and if practiced rightly, there, there's this, um, there's a way that it's, it's, it's out, it outworks. And I think the same thing can be said about uh, different societies and the, the manner in which maybe they approach things like capital punishment and how that's to be adjudicated or, or, or how that's to be facilitated and, and those kinds of things. I mean, there's, there's some latitude there. There are some theonomists out there who are very like they think, you know, it's got to be a, it's got to be the coal community. It's got to be rocks. You got a stone. You got to. And and that's where I, 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 I don't know. I, I think I depart a little bit there. But this podcast isn't about that. This podcast is about cultural Christianity. And I'll tell you what, lately I've been uh, I, I think there's a lot of theonomists that have been uh, doing good work, at least in tr trying to promote this. Uh, there are those though who are way. This is the interesting thing. Like I, I think uh, Doc Sandlin, if I'm not mistaken, um, I, I saw some really aggressive tweets from him on cultural Christianity against it, right? And he's known to be a theonomy guy. Uh, so there are definitely theonomy guys saying they're theonomy guys that are that are against this, and it, it just is it's fascinating to me. I don't know that that's the actual issue here. I don't think that it, it, it's like when people say it's all eschatology. It's like, well, I can see how eschatology relates, but it's really not. Like it, it, it's ethics. Uh, when we're talking about uh, Christian involvement in government. Uh, so yeah, let's continue on with this. Uh, one more question, and then we'll do it. Uh, is modern-day paganism the same thing as secular humanism? For example, it seems odd to me to say that pro-abortion supporters are pagans who sacrifice children to the altar of Baal. Oh man, that's all another rabbit hole. 
Um, that's interesting. I, I, you know, cause I, I think they are used synonymously. Uh, I mean, look in my area, there's pagans that are setting up, uh, the, the, I mean, witches, I mean, they are, you know, let's get the book on the casting uh, spells and, and the crystals and the whole nine yards. And we look at that and we say as Christians, well, that's pagan. Uh, let's sub celebrate the summer solstice and let's do our rituals. Well, it's pagan. It's what you're doing. Um, Secular humanism, I think it, that, that's another broad term, but it, it, that was more popular in the 80s. People are, I think pagan is more appropriate now, but secular humanism was this uh, worship of self, worship of man that, that put man as the measure of all things and uh, saw goodness in man. And um, paganism certainly incorporates the idea that man is, is somehow good. There, there's... Uh, there's a perfectibility to man. There's that that's certainly present in pagan religions. That's why they they do the rituals they do, and why they think they can appease gods or why they're capable or worthy of using the forces of this earth for the promotion of their own will. So th there are parallels there, but secular humanism generally referred to this kind of bland, anti-spiritual uh, approach that just saw um, humans and material materialism as um, kind of the the thing, so uh, they can intersect, but it not they don't have to. Um, they're used differently. Okay, so we we have to um, we have to have to get uh, into this a little bit more. I want to read for you a psalm, a, a part of a psalm, Psalm one thirty seven. It says this: By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jer O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. That's the first half of Psalm 37. The reason I wanted to read that to you is because there's elements of culture in this. Uh, songs, they're talking about a homeland. And they say, the question in verse 4 is, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They, they even say it's our tormentors that are trying. This is torment to try to do this, to sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land. These are songs associated with a place. Now, there's a religious element to this, too. Remember, there, there's culture, religion. There, there's intersection here. There's, there's parallels. Uh, or or there's, there's, um, they, they affect each other. Right? That's the best way to put it. And, and, and they're thinking of a specific place in which they worshipped. Uh, th this is, remember, when Jesus was with the Samaritans. Now, you could say they're close. They're cousins, right? But the Samaritans said, we worship on the mountain. Jesus says, and, and she says, you say that it's Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, there's a time coming. It'll be spirit and truth. But the significance at that time was, uh, uh, on where to worship was uh, it had to do with geography, had to do with a certain place. And that place is going to have certain features, certain plants, certain rocks, certain smells, certain, you know, it's going to look a certain way. And they're saying that there's this place called Zion and, and, and they can't, it's not appropriate. It's not fitting to sing certain songs, songs that's part of their culture in a foreign land. And so there's this lament. They're 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 missing home. There's a there's a homesickness. And I, and I would submit to you. I know I said this before, but that's what people fight for in war. That's what they're they're thinking of home. That's what the letters back home. That's that's what encourages the troops. 
uh, when people go to the front line and they start uh, giving them a little bit of a reminder about what home was like, letters from home. Uh, I mean, a lot of the the songs even used to motivate armies uh, are, are are about the defense of home. That's how we're wired. It's inescapable. Culture is inescapable. Loving uh, loving cultural things is inescapable. Uh, you you can't actually really navigate this world without interacting with culture, without being part of a culture. The church, not not the invisible church, because everyone who joins the invisible church is part of the invisible church. There's no barriers to entry, no cultural barriers. But the visible church in in a community, integrated in the community. Um, is going to look like, in some ways, that community, and it's going to have an effect on that community. So the community, if this church is is, is influential, is is going to look like the church, not in the sense that everyone's saved. I'm not saying that. Uh, hopefully, that is the case. That is what happens. But uh, there will be a general respect for Christianity. It'll be the default setting. It'll be part of the customs and the social mores, the celebrations. Uh, we see this all the time. We see this with symbols. We see this with architecture. Um, we see this with the swearing-in ceremonies in God we trust in courthouses and Christmas displays and invocations. It's, it, we, we see this all the time. And uh, at least most of us do. I don't know. If you live in San Francisco, maybe you don't. But even there, I mean, they may have this, someone who's basically a pagan come up and, and give the invocation, but they, they, they'll, they you know, Nancy Pelosi says she's a Catholic still and that kind of thing. So um, there is, they, they try to nod their head somewhat to some form of religion. It's not true Christianity in that case. There are places though where there are, there's good pastors giving the invocations. There's town supervisors who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, so, so my only point in bringing up Psalm 137 though, is that uh, culture matters, and there, and, and it's it's not um, a psalm. In fact, I don't. I'd be hard pressed to find a scripture that is reaching the that is trying to to give us the conclusion that we ought to be involved in culture uh, because uh, it's inescapable. It's just really the assumption is that you're going to be involved. Of course, in fact, in the ancient world, they would not have had a concept of a society or or a nation. That was not somehow influenced by a religion. It just it would have been foreign to them. Even so, the Roman Empire—that's not a nation; that's an empire. But in the Roman Empire, even you had to pinch your sense to Caesar, right? Even though there's a, a number of religions in it, a number of nations in it. So, uh, you know, this is a, a fairly modern concept that you can have a nation, and they're not going to have some default religion, some some religion that kind of sets the tone, sets the bar, uh, influences the laws, influences the people. This is a very new idea. Um, so uh, religion, I, I maintain, I, I believe, is intrinsic to culture. And and we don't have this concept of a secular multicultural nation in, in scripture. So, so being salt and light in the community, uh, maybe even being all things to all men, so that you might win some. I think this can factor in to um, interactions in culture. Uh, I, there was someone uh, earlier today. We were I was in this group chat, and someone was um, you know making some arguments against cultural Christianity. And I think one of the distinctions that I felt was very important to point out is that 
I don't defend cultural Christianity as an end in in in, in and of itself. Um, perhaps you could say that it, well, it, there's it, public order, earthly good, um, making sure that we have a society that's respecting the laws of God, that kind of thing. That that could be an end in and of itself. But that's not really how I defend it. I defend it as it's a means to an end. That's how I see it. It's it's a means to an end because the ultimate goal is that people would be saved, that they would know the Lord Jesus Christ, they repent of their sins, put their trust in Jesus, and then they would be with him for eternity in a right relationship because he's taken the burden of their sin and paid for it and given them his righteousness. That is the goal, that they would live a holy life in this life and then be glorified uh, in the next and, and be perfect and sinless and please God. And uh, our righteous deeds can't please God. We can. We, there can be earthly good, like a father giving his son a snake, uh, or rather a fish, sorry, when he asks for a fish instead of a snake. But, you know, heavenly good, it's not possible apart from Christ, apart from being redeemed and born again. That's that's crystal clear. And the people who are advocating for cultural Christianity that, that I've seen say the same thing that I just said. That That's, yeah, obviously. Uh, we need people uh, to be saved. But guess what? One of the ways in which people are reminded of the, the fact that there is a God who will judge them and that there's a system of rewards and punishments and that there's something beyond them and that uh, they need to get ready for eternity because they will die, that uh, all of that, one of the ways is through cultural Christianity. It, it reinforces on the heart. It pricks the conscience or allows an opportunity, I should say, for the conscience to be pricked. So th this is a means to an end. It's a means to an end, not an end in and of itself when it comes to spiritual good. Um, you know, I think of even the parable of the soils with this, that there are different conditions in which, you know, the sower goes out and sows. And there are those who uh, it, it fell among thorns. Uh, the devil came, the uh, cares of this life, the pleasures of this life, those concerns uh, choked it out. I mean, there's there's these different soils. And, and, and I think, even part of the heavenly good is you want to make sure if, if at all possible to arrange things in such a way that the soil is conducive. Now I'm not saying, I, you know, I believe God is the one who ordains and the one who um, uh, foreordains those who, who are be saved. I believe in predestination. I think the scripture teaches that doesn't mean he doesn't use means though. And that could be one of the means he uses just like a godly home of a mom and a dad who love Christ. You know, it's better. It's, it, it's a better condition than a, an ungodly home. Or a home that's split and one knows Jesus and one doesn't, right? We wouldn't say that, well, you know, it, it, let's let's say it's a godly home and the child grows up and, and doesn't become a Christian necessarily, but still has a respect for Christianity. Um, I happen to have a lot of familiarity with that type of a situation. Is that a good thing? Is that a better thing than going to the depths of your depravity and rank paganism? Of course it is. Of course it is. There's no doubt about that. And it's the same is true on a broader scale. Um, so I'm going to get into some quotes here uh, about culture and, and some quotes uh, even from Stephen Wolf. And we're going to talk about what this, uh, now, now that it, hopefully I've laid a groundwork in the last 43 minutes, and we're going to get into what this current debate uh, is over. Um, so you'll see what questions are coming in. Uh, when people speak of cultural Christianity, I just think of the Pharisees who profess to love God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. Yeah, I think a lot of people... Uh, who are cri critical of cultural Christianity are saying similar things. They're they're concerned, and and one thing I've noticed, and I've wondered whether this is across the board. Every example I've seen, of, and I don't know where you're from, Montana Viking. I'm assuming you're in Montana, though. 
But every other example that I've known of has been people in the Bible Belt who are making this critique. And I think it's because they know that there's hypocrisy, that, that, that uh, when people are forced into a situation where they're going to lose social capital if they decide to uh, you know, go against Christianity, then they'll conform, but that con it's not a heart conforming, right? So that, that's, that's certainly not a good work. And it, it certainly, a lot of sins go underground that would normally be above the ground. I think that's a good thing that sins are, that they're not publicly displayed. I live in New York and I see publicly displayed sin a whole lot more than I did when I lived in Virginia, a whole lot more. But guess what? Yeah, there was, there were more churches. Uh, there's less churches here in New York. It's not, it's not to your advantage to be a Christian, but in Virginia it is. Uh, where I was. And, um, and guess what? There's a lot of hypocrisy. <laughs> There's a lot of bad churches too. So, so yeah, uh, you know, no one's disputing that, that if you have a society in which Christianity holds sway, there's not going to be a social pressure there. And that social pressure is going to um, cause some people to be hypocrites and Pharisees. But it's, the point is though, it also allows an opportunity uh, for repentance, for reminding them that they will be judged, for the for them to realize that there's a God over them. And those opportunities don't exist in New York. And I'll tell you, just from my own experience, I will take Virginia culture in, in, in the area I live, in Lynchburg area, you know, a thousand times over where I live in New York. I just would. As a Christian, I have to. I don't see... It, it's a mission field where I am. It's like an unreached people group status, it feels like sometimes. Uh, but you know, and, and there's people called to that, but if you're thinking about where I'm going to raise my family and where I'm going to be kept safe and where things are, uh, more conducive to raising kids in a Christian environment in a way that's going to reinforce what you're telling them from the Bible, there's no contest. And, and that's, I, I, I think, I, I think that's all we're really trying to say, to be quite honest with you. Um, yeah. And, and actually Treadle makes a good point here. Good, good Kings of Judah taking away the bales didn't automatically turn every heart to God, but they were described as doing right nonetheless. That is an excellent point. That is exactly. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, that, that is a perfect example of, of uh, I think, what I'm talking about. All right. Um, so so let's, let's move on a little bit, and let me read for you some quotes, if I may, um, from uh, Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. And again, I don't agree with everything in Stephen's book. Uh, I don't even necessarily like in every way. I, I feel like I have to say this for some reason. I probably don't. But uh, the, the term, I, I'm a little bit, you know, I don't know if I want to use the term Christian nationalism, but I think Stephen makes some great points about cultural Christianity. And because, and this is why I have to bring Stephen Wolf into this, because it's Stephen's book that is the most critiqued right now online, from big names, in some cases, who are making the arguments that I described to you earlier that, uh, you know, it, it's the New Testament church is never commanded to produce or to influence culture. Therefore, we shouldn't be involved or, or St Stephen's wrong or whatever. I, I am compelled to go back to the source to, to share with you uh, some of the things that Stephen has said. So here's the what he opens his chapter. He's a whole chapter on cultural Christianity with. It's a quote from Roger Scruton, and it says, religion is a way of life involving customs and ceremonies that validate what matters to us and which reinforce the attachments by which we live. It is both a faith and a form of membership. It is with the destiny of the individual is bound up with that of the community. Now, Roger Scruton is a, is a Roman Catholic, from what I understand. I've, I've benefited from some of his writings, but he's not you know, reformed. He's not Protestant. He's not an evangelical. 
what he's saying here though is right um he's an, he's observing the way that religion functions in a culture and it is it is a way of life it does affect everything you do in the middle east this isn't even a question right it's it's only in secularized places uh that this has become somewhat of a question where where there's this compartmentalization but if you go to you know india or you go to uh saudi arabia or if you go to you know even places very influenced by eastern religions they are going to like they, they don't have a concept of that unless maybe you're in a metropolitan area then then there's more compartmentalization of this is my religion but i don't really live that way if it's true religion especially you, you and it doesn't even have to be the true religion if it's just something that you hold dear and you think is true even if it's not you're it's going to affect the way you live it's a way of life and it does involve these things and and so you know this is part of being in a community that's why i said in the ancient world they never would have they, they never would have had a concept of a people group that didn't have some kind of a religion attached to it there were exceptions sure perhaps but in general the, the society operated by that if, if i go to turkey today right i'm going to have to just accept the fact that i'm living in a place that i'm going to be woken up probably by the call to prayer the muslim call to prayer just the way it is um i would be the exception in that environment and i would seek for people to be saved i couldn't implement a christian nationalism there or a cultural christianity or you know whatever term you want to use uh that's just the way it is because that's the default setting of the society and in a place in the united states where there's church bells going off and that's what you hear and there's no sound ordinance against it and, and christianity is uh, fairly recognized and has an advantage even uh, with the government perhaps that's that's going to be the default setting of someone who's uh, moving there for is jewish or muslim or, or some other religion they're just going to have to get used to that because that's what the society uh, and they're going to be an outsider in some ways because christianity does uh, and religion in general does um serve this function okay um that's just an observation. That's not a Bible verse. That's just, but that's just an observation about that. Yeah, that, that is how people function. And I think that's hundred percent true. I don't know how you would even argue against that, that, that our faith impacts us. So Stephen Wolf defines cultural Christianity this way. Cultural Christianity is a mode of religion wherein social facts normalize Christian cultural practices, i.e. social customs. Okay, so he said that's a fancy way of saying that Christianity influences the social customs and Christian self-conception of a nation in order to prepare people to receive the Christian faith and keep them on the path to eternal life. Okay, so it's, there's a preparatory work here. There's uh, when you see yourself as part of a Christian nation and you, uh, you 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 think you're part of something that that has that as the default setting, um, and there's an influence of Christianity that can be a preparatory work for actual conversion. That's what he's saying. It's exposing you to truths that you wouldn't normally be exposed to. Uh, number two, to establish and maintain a commodious social life. So, so this is like, there's order. There's not friction. Uh, people get along. Uh, there's God's laws is, is followed. Like that, that's good for everyone. That's what he's saying. And three, to make the earthly city an analog of the heavenly city. Um, and, and so he's drawing on Augustine here uh, primarily, but I think what he's trying to say there is that the the earthly city, the, the, the temporal world in which we live is supposed to conform itself to 
uh, heavenly reality. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, so this is, we don't do it perfectly, <laughs> certainly, but we are um, acknowledging the fact that there's a standard out there that we are, are to meet. Whether we, we hit it or not, we are supposed to uh, strive for something greater. That's what he's saying. So he says that um, cultural Christianity, and this is on page 213 of the book, cannot itself bring about anyone's salvation. So all the objections about, well, this doesn't save anyone. Yeah, well, he, he's admitting that. It is a pre uh, preparative mode, like civil power. It lacks the means to save. For social power, it is not spiritual power. So he's saying there's no spiritual power with this. Um, it, it, unless God does something, there, the, you know, there, you can you can even preach the gospel all day to someone, by the way. And unless God does something. So cultural Christianity internalizes the felt duty to perform Christian practices. It engenders a heightened sense of one's sin and need for salvation. And it forms structures of plausibility that lead people to assent, assent to Christian belief. But neither conforming to its direction or existing in or under it can save someone. So I just I need to just let people know that look the, the one of the main advocates here for cultural Christianity is totally admitting here that this does not save people that uh, influencing a, a culture with Christianity does not directly in and of itself save people it, the Lord has to use the witness that that might provide to save someone that might be an opportunity but it doesn't save anyone so that anyone who thinks that you're corrected right now. The scripture does not give you any license to say that people are going to heaven because they were born into a Christian culture or because their parents were Christian. That's that's not New Testament Christianity. Uh, that would be works. That would be law. Uh, that's not grace. Stephen says on page 216, a Christian self-conception unites a people and a Christian religion, making the Christian religion fundamental to who they are as a nation. This is probably where it gets the most controversial. It is a normalized social fact. To be a good member of the people, one must be a Christian, at least outwardly, and anyone who denies Christ in word or deed is subject to social separation or other social costs. Now, this is where people, I think, start to freak out because they're thinking, wait, how can you say be a Christian outwardly? He's not saying, remember what we just read, he's not saying that someone is an actual Christian just because they have conformed themselves to God's law. In fact, there's people at my church, I'm sure, because uh, there's weed among the tares, right? I'm sure there are people at my church who have conformed themselves. Maybe they think it'll give them an advantage or friends or whatever, and they are not Christians. Um, but outwardly, they function in certain ways for earthly good as a Christian would function. In other words, they're not, they're not lying on the job. They're, they're, they have a basic code of, uh, that they're trying to live by, and it, it's derived from Christianity. That's where they're getting it. They're taking their kids to church, right? So from the, and, and I might not even be able to tell. That's the whole point of tares and wheat. They look similar, right? But inwardly, you know, God knows the heart. <laughs> so so what he's saying is that it's actually a good thing when people have to try to conform themselves, and, and there's consequences for it not being uh functioning in a christian way now i think we understand this like you know something like murder let's let's use an extreme example like we understand god it, the why shouldn't we murder because god said not to murder that's christian okay um do other religions have that okay yeah but but I, i'm talking to christians here christians you know where that comes from right it's from god it's behaving like a christian to not murder someone 
to 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 uh, make sure that you're you don't hate them even right that that's a Christian thing. So someone who is not a Christian but follows the law because they're afraid of the consequences if they murder is that a good thing for them? You bet it is. It's a good thing for the person that they would have hurt too because they're not going to get hurt. Now that's an extreme example. Stephen would probably go further and say that there's actually other things, even even laws perhaps pertaining to blasphemy in certain situations. We used to have those on the books in this country. And I don't know exactly the specifics of what he would advocate, but I think he's open to the possibility of that, that you shouldn't profane the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, there's people that get bent out of shape about that. It's like, you're, you're, that's what, what about free speech? I want to use another example that I think um, it, it will help people understand this a little more, and that is pornography. Pornography was illegal in many places up until actually fairly recently. Some of you listening and within your lifetime, you could go to jail in certain, like I think in Alabama in the 19, late 1970s, I think it was, uh, there was a, a singer that uh, I think it was Johnny Paycheck, if I'm not mistaken, went to jail for having, possessing a picture of uh, a nude person, a nude woman. And I mean, that's the, that, that's not that long ago. Was that suppressing the freedom of speech? You know, is the, um, the regulations on public broadcast, is that suppression of freedom of speech? Right. We don't think of it that way. We, we make an exception there. We say, well, yeah, poor, most, most Christians say pornography should be banned or regulated or kept out of, you know, minors shouldn't see it or, you know, there, there's some kind of a regulation somewhere. We, and, and they don't say, well, that's hampering free speech. At least I hope not. I hope we're not to that point yet. Um, it's, there's a public good that is accomplished. Even when sinners who in their heart want to go look at that kind of thing, when they're prevented from looking at it, that's a good thing. They're not going to the depths of the evil that they would normally be able to go to. And, and there's all kinds of things that flow from that kind of activity that are, are, are bad, that are drains on society, that aren't good. And Christians can see that, we can acknowledge that, and we can see that that's a, that's a moral good to, to prevent people from doing that, even with the force of law at times. That's, you're not going to have that under the, the, the liberal democracy that we're seeing defended today. You don't have a basis for that. You have to be drawing upon, upon Christianity in our case, but upon a religion. And so Steve, that's what Stephen is saying. That's, that's the, at least the principle how this outworks. I'm not interested in right now, but that's the principle is that Christianity, uh, that, that the laws that come from God and the, the customs and all of that, that they should have a privileged status, that they, they have the right because they're true to govern even uh, pagan people. The end of cultural Christianity is threefold. Earth, eternal life, commodious earthly life, and imaging heavenly life. So we, we already talked about those three things, but those are the three uh, advantages to this. And, and you notice he leads with uh, this, th there's this heavenly advantage, which parallels the first use of the law to convict of sin. And so that's what we're talking about. When we talk about cultural Christianity, this isn't so much, I mean, it, I'm sure that it could be incorporated into this, but this isn't so much when you go down to Hobby Lobby. Uh, it's not, at least it's, it's more than that. It's not, it's more than just walking into Hobby Lobby and seeing verses and things like that. It's more than just, it's not less than, but it's, it's more than 
uh, what Steven's advocating at least. It's more than just walking to the coffee shop I talked about the other day where they're playing I'll Fly Away and stuff. Um, he's saying that even government can get involved in this and promoting distinctly Christian and, and conceiving itself of as that's what we're doing. Like, like, like in my opinion, this is just honesty. So, so if you enact laws, let's say, we'll, we'll pick the murder one again, law that thou shalt not murder. Okay. Why? Well, because man's made in God's image and you know, that's unique to Christianity. That's, that's something that you, you don't get that just out in nature, right? That you can kill an animal, but you can't kill a human. Why? Because man is made in God's image. Um, you can eat animals, but you're not allowed to eat humans. Why? Because man is made in God's image. So this is, it's Christian. It's biblical. It's honest when you're creating, crafting a law to regulate that kind of, or not regulate, but outlaw that kind of thing, punish that kind of thing. It would be right to be honest and acknowledge comes from God, right? Rather than, uh, rather than just not acknowledging that at all or pretending it comes from something else. No, even if even if this is revealed in a natural revelation way, this comes from God, and and that's why that's what Stephen's saying. That even when the government the government can be self conscious that what they're what, the, the principles they're applying come from Christianity, there really shouldn't be much controversial about this. But but there I think there is. So um, I'm going to take some questions now. If anyone has them, now would be the time to uh, put them into the chat. Uh, and I will do my best to answer what I can. I don't. I can't answer everything, um, but uh, I can answer some things, hopefully. So we have a question here. Uh, can you name the moment in time any apostle appealed to cultural Christianity as necessary preparatory work? Uh, not off the top of my head. Um, I mean, they didn't. They didn't have cultural Christianity as such yet. They had. Um, Jewish customs and that kind of thing. And I do see a parallel there. And, and in that case, I would point to uh, the Apostle Paul. And um, he actually says in multiple places that it is an advantage to be Jewish. Um, he talks about even uh, the cross is a stumbling block. Uh, and, and why is it a stumbling block? It, it's foolishness uh, to, um, to the Greeks. Actually, let me pull up that passage because I think that might be a good example. Um, the reason that you know different gospels are written differently, uh, writing to Jews and writing to Gentiles, two different audiences, and there's an advantage to being a Jew to understanding already uh, so many of the things about God's law, what He expects. So, let's see here. stumbling block for Jews. That's what I thought. Okay. First Corinthians uh, one says this. Um, it says, let's see, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's see, that's not where I wanted to go here. What verse did I want to go to? Let's go to verse twenty-three-ish. Okay, so it says. Um, you know, where is the message of the cross? Verse 18 is foolishness. And then verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher? Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. What I find interesting in this is that there's a difference between the reaction the Jews have and those. The, the gospel pierces both, but 
um, but it's just a stumbling block to the Jews, right? It's it's like they, they have so much already right as far as like they understand God's law, they understand the Messiah is coming, right? But they, but the fact that it's Jesus, like that's a hard thing that that that, that it's it's Christ crucified, specifically the crucifixion, because they thought he's coming to conquer. Like, what, what do you mean this Christ is, is, was crucified? That doesn't make sense to, to us. That's why it was a stumbling block. And of course, they weren't interpreting the law correctly. But it's foolishness to Gentiles, that whole thing. It, it's like a foreign concept. And that's what you see in Acts 17 on, on Mars Hill. Paul has to start way before. He has to like really go back in, into uh, uh just some basic understandings of the fact that there's a creator before he can get to um, talking about, you know, the gospel and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Y you see this with Paul's even habits. Like he goes to the synagogue first uh, or the temple. He, he goes there first and preaches. And then when he's rejected, he goes, then that's when he goes to the Gentiles. So um, I, I do think there is a great advantage to, to that. And, and that would be the parallel that I would see. So, um, <laughs> Matthew Fletcher says, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, first to the cultural Christians, then to the, then, then to the Gentiles. To be honest with you, yeah. Like, like, actually, yeah. Like, if you're going into a community and you're going to be planning a church or revitalizing a church, um, where do you go first? Now, now, if you're rejected and it doesn't work out, go plan a church like from scratch. But, but if there's already a Christian presence there of some kind, build on it. Encourage the people that are, uh, at the church who are suffering because they're surrounded by a bunch of lukewarm people or whatever. Like, like I, I do think that's right. They, they already have a conception. Um, I, I remember I, I shared this story. I was at the Culinary Institute of America leading a lesson last Christmas. And I started saying how this is a great opportunity to share with your, your friends about Jesus. Cause you know, it's Christmas and, and, and I, no one, everyone was looking at me funny. So I said, wait, people do know about Jesus here. And they said, no, People don't associate Jesus with Christmas. And I just lost it. I was just like, are you serious? Really? And, and I'm like, wow, things have changed really fast, even in, in the area that I'm in. Um, if someone already knows a little bit about who Jesus is, knows that there's 10 commandments, like you use the way of the master method, right? You start with the 10 commandments. It's, it's, there, there's like, there's a work that's already been done. They already get the law, right? And without the law, the, you, you don't have the knowledge of sin that you start with the law. So, having at least an understanding of the law, it already puts you on a, on a better footing to witness to someone, to make it understandable than, than someone who just doesn't even acknowledge that doesn't have any concept of that. Um, so that's my, that's my best answer on the spot. I hope that helps. <laughs> so um, let's see who else. Let's see. Man, there's a lot of comments here. Uh, questions are really what I'm looking for uh more so than than statements um but i'll take statements this is a, a question let's see it says is the word of god exhaustive of all necessary means for propagating christ's kingdom or are we free to philosophize outside of god's word about the proper means of evangelism i don't know if i understand this question completely i'm going to try my best I, I think what is being asked here is um, can we use methods that, so like a regulative principle question, can you use methods that God has not necessarily outlined in order to spread the gospel? I'm kind of an all of above guy. Any way you can get the gospel out there, get the gospel out there, um, w within reason, uh, like, you know, I, I wouldn't go into the local strip club to share the gospel. 
I, I wouldn't start off on a compromised foot to share the gospel or tempt yourself in the, you know, like obviously those things. But um, as far as being creative, then yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we see certain methods used. We see like open air preachings used in scripture. We see conversations used in scripture for this. Today we have the internet. Is it okay to use the internet? I mean, the person who asked this question is using the internet right now. Is, it, is that okay? Can we, can we do that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's however you can communicate, but you have to communicate it. Um, how will they know without a preacher? So sometimes that preaching's on YouTube. Sometimes that's how they're hearing it. And thank God for that. So I don't know if that helps. Hopefully that answered the question, but I don't know. Uh, okay, here's another question. Um, do you think Pentecost and the gift of tongues is an indication of moving away from one's ethnic culture and towards a more unified global Christian culture? The gift of tongues. Um, okay, so... I think I understand this. Uh, maybe I don't. <laughs> so, so it, 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 specifically, what that is is a sign. It, it says this in First Corinthians chapter four, no, thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, fourteen. It says that tongues is a sign to unbelievers, and it's specifically unbelieving Jews. That's specifically what tongues is for. So, it's showing that. Um, that, that Gentiles are included, that Gentiles are, uh, the gospel has gone to them and the institution of the church is now, uh, is, is now there. And I, I don't, I don't believe that is a, um, I better not get into this. <laughs> I better not get into the eschatology stuff. Uh, but, but I'll, I'll just say this. Um, I, I, I think that it, it is not, if what you're suggesting is that this created one new identity that, destroys all the temporal identities. No, no, that's not the case at all. Um, we have different nationalities in scripture after Pentecost being described. Uh, we, you could even say the same thing about like things like marriage. I mean, there's, there's no marriage in heaven, right? But there's marriage here on earth still that you're still married here. Uh, you're still part of a family here, right? Even though you're part of the family of God too. So, so both can be true at the same time. Um, okay. Well, oh, here's another question. All right. I think we'll probably end with this. We've been going about an hour and 10 minutes. Did any of the great awakening ministers appreciate the cultural Christianity of their time, or did they preach the necessity of repentance for abusing God's blessing? Well, that's not really an either, or that's the thing. It, it's like, it's not like, well, they either preached against cultural Christianity or, or they are, they are, they, they either appreciated cultural Christianity or they preached the necessity of, of repentance. You, you can actually do both. That's what I do. <laughs> you do both. Um, calling out hypocrisy, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. And many of them did. George Whitfield certainly did. In fact, I'm thinking of a letter that he wrote um, calling out Christians uh, who own slaves and saying, you have a duty to preach the gospel to these slaves. And uh, this was in the... Um, you know, when he was, you know, late 1700s, uh, well, mid to late, uh, that's when he's writing this. And, and of course, um, you know, history shows that a lot of denominations took that very seriously afterward, but uh, in, more in the federal period. But during that time, um, you know, he, he is calling out a hypocrisy there, saying you're, you're calling yourself Christian. You're not even the people that are under your care in a labor relationship. You're not even sharing the gospel with them. What is that? So, so he definitely called out stuff, but um, you would not have had the revivals that you did have if it were not for, well, I, I'll phrase it this way. 
there was an advantage in having a basic understanding of Christianity for those revivals to take place. Even at Jonathan Edwards Church, he called out the hypocrisy. He called out the halfway covenant. But the fact that they already had, they, they were some, some of the, um, the wiring necessary to understand that there, God has a law, that we're going to be judged. Just, just even those two things uh, go a long way. So um, they don't save you, but it is a precondition. You have to understand you're a sinner before uh, receiving the gospel. So, um, okay. So I think that's it for the podcast. I hope that was helpful. I hope, you know, I hope people were benefited from that. That's my take on cultural Christianity. I'm going to defend it. Um, there's, there's a song. Uh, it's totally culturally Christian that I just saw from uh, a guy named Riley Green. He's a country singer, but I just saw this last night. And it's called Raised Upright. And so he didn't, he, he hasn't paid me to tell you this, but if you like country music, it, it's a pretty good song. It, it's like, it's just talking about being raised basically in the Bible belt, going to church, um, you know, having soap in your mouth because you said a bad word. Uh, I mean, I, I remember these kinds of things uh, and, and how that was a good thing. That was a positive thing. I don't know if Riley Green saved or not. Is it a good thing? Sure it is. Sure it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> We got other questions coming in, but I can't, guys. I got to go. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. This is, some of these questions are, are going to open real cans of worms, but I can't open them now. Guys, God bless. Uh, thanks for joining on the stream. Uh, more coming later this week. God bless. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.